All right, welcome back to the Filmographies podcast. I am beyond thrilled today to welcome the one and only Paul Flaherty, director of Clifford, uh, and so many other great comedy classics here. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, my pleasure, Jake. Well, yeah, I think I'd love to start off, uh, if you don't mind, kind of a catch up of your career up until uh, Clifford, which would which is what we'll be focusing on today, just how you got interested in film, how you became a director, and uh, how your path led you to this opportunity. Well, my interest in film was sparked by uh, the movie Lawrence of Arabia, which really completely captured me. And uh, it was the first time that I was aware that there was somebody behind the camera deciding what I saw and what I heard. And uh, I was just completely captivated by it. So uh, my cousin had a camera, an eight millimeter camera, which she let me use. And I started making my own little films when I was young. And um, I learned a lot from observing that film and, and many others about how the director decided what it was that the audience saw and for how long they saw it and from which angle. And uh, I was completely fascinated by it. And uh, and to this day, <laughs> mm -hmm. so that's uh, that that's how I got started. Now my first professional film job was for PBS, although back then it was called NET National Educational Television. I was hired as a cinematographer and film editor for WQED in Pittsburgh, which is where. Mr. Rogers used to tape. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I used to see him all the time. Oh, wow. Uh, used to run into him in the, uh, we had a little cafeteria, and I'd run into him there, and I'd say, hi, Fred, how are you? And he would look up and just nod. He never really <laughs> said anything, he would just nod. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and everybody called him Fred. Anyway, that was my first paid job in film um, and immediately I screwed up there was a um, I was editing a, a sequence that had the it was supposed to be about students taking over a building at a, at a university and one of them threw a rock through the window and there was a crash and I had edited the film, edited the sound, and I was working on the, on the movieola, and then we showed it to the executives, and my sync was completely off. The, uh, they threw the uh, rock through the window, but the crash came about 15 seconds earlier, mm -hmm. and the entire room you know, erupted in laughter, and I felt, I felt like I was about Two inches tall, you know, <laughs> but they were, but they were very understanding that it was my first gig, and uh, they didn't fire me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that that was my first uh, 
foray into professional filmmaking. And I tried very hard to um, get uh, into film in Pittsburgh. There was a, um, a filmmaker named Joe Pitka, who was um, based in Pittsburgh. And he later went on to become probably the most famous commercial film director. He said like more Super Bowl commercials than anybody. And um, I went to uh, apply for a job there, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, he was very, very nice. You know, he listened very carefully to my pitch. And he said, well, now, what is it eventually that you'd like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to direct and make my own films. He said, mm -hmm. that's good. He said, well, I can't hire you. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, well, why is that? He said, well, I'll, I'll train you. I'll give you all this on-the-job experience. And then as soon as you learn everything that you can, you will leave and go and make a film. <laughs> so I will, have, I will have trained you for absolutely nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was really difficult for me to, uh, to break in. Now, I'm also a musician. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot easier to get enough money together to buy a guitar and an amplifier than it was to get together the budget for a film. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, quite a difference. Yeah. So I played music for a while, for a long time, long time. Uh, played in Pittsburgh, moved to Los Angeles. Um, did some, a lot of studio work there. Played with uh, Ray Charles for a while. Oh, wow. And, uh, but deep down, my first love was, was film. So my brother Joe had, in the meantime, uh, been part of a show called SCTV, which was a syndicated show back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and they eventually went to network. And... Um, Harold Ramis, who was one of the people that worked on it, read a screenplay that I co-wrote and liked it a lot. And they hired me as a writer on SETV. Wow. So that show then went to network, went to NBC. And we went on to win lots and lots of Emmy Awards. Um, one year we we captured all the nominations in our category. We won, we got all five nominations. So we knew that we won the Emmy Award before we even got there. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And it had some great people in the cast. It had John Candy and Rick Moranis, Eugene mm -hmm. Levy, Catherine O'Hara. Mm -hmm. um, and while I was on that show, um, they allowed me to start directing film parodies. Which is what I did. That's, and I started writing and directing film parodies and got a lot of really good experience doing that, because uh, they they gave me a lot of creative control. They let me spearhead the project, you know, from the writing. You know, I would write them or co co-write them. You know, do the pre-production on them, direct them, then do the post-production all the post audio, the editing, 
And it was really good experience on a microcosmic level, just doing those short things, because it prepared me for getting into feature film directing. Yeah. Yeah. What so, was so, hmm? oh, sorry, what was the turnaround time on the uh filmed movie parodies you would do? Was it a weekly uh situation or did you have a little bit more flexibility and how quickly you had to turn those around? Oh, you know, it was completely um unpredictable. It <laughs> could be something that you know that had to be written and shot within three days. Wow. Yeah. Or, or it could have been something that we brainstormed in the uh, off-season writing sessions and had up on the cork board, you know, for months before I directed it. So there was no real, I mean, there was no average turnaround mm -hmm. time. Okay. But it was invaluable to me to, to spearhead it all the way through, you know, because yeah. I had to deal yeah. with all of those different departments. I had to deal with the art department, you know, who did the, the props and the mm -hmm. sets and I had to deal with, you know, the, the production people who would go out and, you know, get the get the uh, locations purchased, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, working with the editors and the, and the sound mixers all the way through. Mm -hmm. It was really, really good experience, you know? Yeah. So the, by the time I got my first film, uh, which was after SCTV and after a bunch of other television stuff that I had worked on, um, I had had a pretty good grounding, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, the first film that I did was called 18 Again. It was a film with um, George Burns from, you know, he was in Oh God. Uh, mm -hmm. And Charlie Schlatter was the, was the lead in it. And... Um, it was uh, it was a good a good experience, you know, because that was the first time I had to deal with a uh, a studio or a mini major studio, you know, uh, and all of the the casting was very because I was a first time director. Uh, they would ask me, so who do you see in this part, you know, and I would say so and so and so and so, and they would say, well, what do you think about so-and-so and i'd say yes she's good she's good uh but i still think well you know the guy that i originally picked would be the best for it he said, you know well, 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 let's go with our pick <laughs> and uh <laughs> and so it went i mean basically mm -hmm. for a first time director in my position um they were the they had the final say mm -hmm. but nevertheless there i was all of a sudden, with a crew of about 50 people, and it's the first day of shooting, and they're all standing around me in a circle at 8 a.m. in the morning, and they want to know what they should do that day. <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> and I had, to, I, I had to tell them. Yeah. And, uh, and I did some fast thinking on my feet for part of it. Mm -hmm. But for uh, but for a lot of it, I was prepared, you know. I've always um, always been an advocate of that, of being really prepared going into a film, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's that whole thing of 
seeing the film in your mind's eye before you get on the floor, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was also the first time that I had to deal with actors that I didn't know Mm -hmm. It weren't personal friends, you know, and, and, you know, fans of mine, complete strangers. And uh, I had to learn how to work with them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because they had their own, you know, body of work and they had their own, you know, sense of who they are, ego, right? Mm-hmm which you had to be careful of because, you know, you could step on toes very easily. Yeah. But one of the big things that I learned was that actors are very nervous often because it's their face in the close-up on that big screen and they're trusting me to make them look good. Yeah, yeah it's out of their hands a little bit. Yes. And uh, that, that's that's disconcerting for an actor. It, it always is, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and different actors will react different ways, you know. Um, and you have to be able to adjust to the actor. I didn't know that right away. You know, it took it took that that experience. I had to I had to learn that on the job. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but um yeah, you you know, actors, in in many ways, are doing a a tightrope walk. You know, they're up there, a hundred feet above the ground on a tightrope, and uh, if they if they feel that they're, you know, looking bad, not not getting the right direction, then that's you know, like to them equivalent to falling off that tightrope. You know, mm -hmm. so you've got to be there with that net. To catch them you know if that happens yeah and, and the more that they realize that they can trust you to make the right decision the better the working conditions are the more the more relaxed it gets mm -hmm. and the more relaxed it gets the better everybody works yeah you know mm -hmm. i've i've heard all my life you know the axiom that you know the best work is done when there's tension tension on the set I, I I think that's bullshit. Yeah. I think the best work I think the best work is done when the people are relaxed. You know, uh, you're 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 more able to take chances. You know, uh, your 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 first impressions come out in a much freer way. You know, um, so that that was something that I that I learned. You know, it's better to be relaxed. There are some directors that absolutely don't believe that. Some directors will actually do things on purpose to cause tension on mm -hmm. the set because they believe that that tension will 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 will, will translate into energy on the screen, you know. Yeah. And I guess it. And I guess at times it does. I just don't. I just think that in the long run, it's counterproductive, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Definitely. I've never done my best work when I'm. Uh, you know, like panicked or, or uptight. Mm -hmm. So, um, I also worked with George Burns, who was 93 at the time. Wow. 
He was 93. That's uh, amazing. Yes. And there were several sequences where he had a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And he just couldn't get to it. He couldn't, he just couldn't remember it. Mm-hmm. So I would just have to keep the camera rolling, you know. He'd get his he'd get as many lines out as he could, and then his eyes would kind of just start swimming in his head, you know. I'd say, okay, George, just I'd say keep 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 rolling, keep rolling. That's okay, George, you know, and uh, we're you know, they'd show him the script, give him his lines, he'd say, Okay, fine, fine. And we'd take it up and we'd have to shoot the whole thing piecemeal like that. But in the end, you know, I would always make sure that I shot him clean in a in a separate shot so that I could always cut away to the person he was talking to whenever he had those moments where he went blank, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he was grateful for that. He knew he knew that I had his his back, you know. Uh, and we and it worked out worked out fine, I thought, you know. Yeah, is this something, had you worked with the editor of this film before? Was that something that was ever a discussion or just as you got to the post-production phase on this film? I had, I had never worked with the uh, editor. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I worked with the editor. And I learned a big lesson. Um, the producer of the film was a guy, it was a guy named Walter Koblenz, who did, um, remember that movie, All the President's Men? Yes, yeah. Yeah, he produced that. Oh wow! And and uh, he uh, he liked me. He had faith in me. And that was, then we finished shooting the film, and uh, he just said, "Okay, take a take a week off, a week or two, or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll put the film together and look at and look at the rough cut." Well, we did. We sat in the empty projection room. He and I. And the editor had assembled the first cut of the movie. And what he did was he put in everything. Mm-hmm. He used every angle that I shot. Now, he, with the best of motives, he wanted to show me exactly what it was that I shot so that I could make decisions about which shot to use. What he didn't know was I had made the decision about which shot to use before I ever shot it. <laughs> yeah it makes it difficult um, yeah and so so it was the it was the typical rough cut which basically gets most directors want to commit suicide after they see the rough cut mm-hmm. and the producer panicked Walter we're, we're screwed we're screwed there's no movie there we're screwed and uh, I realized that you know all sequences that I had planned out were completely undermined because the editing wasn't there. It was just an assembly. Mm -hmm. So I had to tear the whole thing apart from frame one and start all over again with the editor. And I built it shot after shot after shot after shot after shot. Went through the whole movie. And then we showed it to the to Walter again, the, the, the producer, and he was ecstatic. You know? Mm-hmm. He said, oh, no, oh, no, no, now I see, now I see, now I see, you know? Um, so that basically happened on everything I did after that in terms of the, the rough cut. 
every one of them, I had to tear it apart and start all over again. Wow. Um, yeah, you know, if you shoot that way, if you're the kind of director that shoots that way, that you know, at least, at least as much as you can. No, nobody ever knows 100% for sure which shots you're going to use. But if you have a very good idea, then um, the editor, the editor doesn't when he's putting the putting the rough cut together. It's not until you sit down in the editing room with the editor and you and you go through it, which is always my favorite part of filmmaking, the editing. When you really get to build the film as a whole, yes, yes, and when you get it, and you when you get a chance to see, mm-hmm. when I was putting that shot list together in my kitchen, the mm-hmm. weekend, the weekend before when I got, you know, I actually shot it to see that that movie that I had in my mind's eye, whether I could actually get to that movie with the editing, you know. Mm-hmm. And Not, uh, that, that was the greatest fun for me when it actually worked mm-hmm. the way I wanted it to work, you know? Yeah. Can um, I? Um, hmm. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, I just ahead, wanted to ask about, uh, I guess, yeah, if you're going in, um, I guess the decision behind getting the coverage in the first place, was that more of a studio producer kind of mandated thing is this being so early in your filmmaking career? That's another that's another lesson I learned mm-hmm. uh, because I had a very strong sense of what my coverage was. Mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, often not shoot masters, master shots, big wide master shots because I knew I knew I wasn't going to use it, mm-hmm. and and those are the ones that take up the most time to light. Yeah. Uh, well, when they, you know, but the the studio was always looking at the looking at the dailies every every day, and they would see that I would shoot a limited amount of footage to get what I wanted. In other words, I didn't necessarily have to. If I had a two shot of two people walking, and I did it in a in a, in a tracking shot. And I felt that it played that way. I've I wouldn't go in and shoot close-ups of them. I would just let it play in the two shot. But when the studio would see it, they would they would they would fall back on that default position of, you know, give us coverage, give us coverage. Why? Because if you give them that coverage, then they can take over the editing if they want to, and then re-edit the film. If you just give them a two shot, which can't be edited, they don't like that. Yeah, yeah. And the other big lesson that I learned is the editor doesn't work for you. The editor mm-hmm. works for the, works for the studio. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, if they, you know, the editors also want more coverage for the, mm-hmm. for the for the same reason, you know. So it's a constant battle between. You know, the director and the um, and the and and the, and the studio on that. Unless you're a big, big shot, a list director, then you just, you know, you get your way, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe not on the first movie. No, no. I mean, even all you know, in the or, second and third, yeah. in the second and third movies that I yeah. did, they were 
same deal, you know. Mm -hmm. They always complained about the, uh, they wanted more coverage. They want more coverage. They want mm -hmm. more coverage. They want more coverage. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I got to the point where rather than fight them, I would shoot the other coverage, but I wound up never using it. So it was a waste, you know. Yeah. Um, some directors, you know, uh, classic film directors like uh, George Stevens, uh, he would shoot enormous amounts of coverage, mm -hmm. enormous amounts. And he would do it uh, from both, both angles, you know, from forward and backward. And uh, it's, it's enormously expensive. Yeah. Time mm -hmm. But that's that's what he did. Yeah. Worked for him. Uh definitely with uh at least a few of those films. Yeah. He was also one of those directors that shot an enormous number of takes. Mm -hmm. And um William Wyler was another one that did that. And um Stanley Kubrick eventually became a director that would shoot like 50, 60 takes of something. And, you know, whenever you would ask those directors, the actors would say, what is it you're looking for? What, mm -hmm. do, what do you want me to do? I've done everything that I can. What is it that you want me to do? I'll, I'll just tell me and I'll do it. And they would say, I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll know it when I see it. Okay, take 65. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah, not very yeah. reassuring. Yeah, and it's I I think that's a terrible thing to do to actors. Yeah. You know, you just fucking wear them down. Mm -hmm. And um and usually in my experience, if you've got good actors, you've got it in the first several takes anyway, you know. Mm -hmm. That's usually when that's usually when when they're at their best, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you run into that problem where you've got a really great actor working with an actor that's just so-so, and -so. mm -hmm. in a scene, the really good actor is strongest in the first few takes, and then slowly starts going downhill. The mm -hmm. actor that's not quite as talented is usually not that good in the first takes, but gets starts getting better as you go along, you know. So you've got, you've got that you've got that problem, you know. Yeah, it's a real balancing act, uh, especially yeah. in the editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I that's one of the reasons I love digital mm -hmm. is that uh, you you don't have to say. Okay, print that, mm -hmm. which is what which is what you had to do in, in in those days. Rather than rather than print all of the film that you shot, you were you were meant to save money by only printing a certain number of takes, right? And those would be the takes that you circled as the good takes, right? Yeah. But from my perspective. I never really knew what the best take was until I got in the editing room. Mm -hmm. When I, you know, I could be on the floor and I could swear that uh, that take two was the best take, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, get in the editing room, and it was take three or take one that was actually the, the 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 better take and cut together better, you know. 
Um, yeah, I'm so glad that that print print that uh, is gone because you can just keep running that digital camera, and uh, it doesn't doesn't cost anything, you know. Yeah, yeah, as long as your heart desires. Yeah, boy, what a huge difference it was back then with film, mm-hmm. um, especially with effect, you know. Yeah. Back when I was shooting those films, to do just a simple dissolve from one scene to the next, had, it had to be done in a laboratory, mm-hmm. and it cost a lot of money just yeah. to do the dissolve. And you and you couldn't see the dissolve until you got that that footage back from the lab with the uh, dissolve. If you were doing test screenings, you would just have to put little squiggly marks on the um, on the work print, wow. you know, to show mm-hmm. that this is where the dissolve would go. Mm-hmm. And the audience, when they would see those squiggly lines, they'd always laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, takes you out of it a little but, bit. But, but but now digitally, you can see just about any effect you want, you know, at the click of a keyboard key. You know, mm-hmm. you don't you don't you you don't have to wait to see that. You you don't you don't have to wait to see your green screen footage mm-hmm. uh, married married together. You know, yeah. I mean, digital is so much better, so much better. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're on the when you're on the floor, you know, if you've got a good uh, um, tech, you know, a technician, you can get a really good idea on a good monitor right on the floor of what it is that you're getting without having to go to to dailies, you know, which mm-hmm. is what you had to do back then. You had to wait for the uh, for the film to be developed and then go to dailies to see what it looked like. Yeah, just it has to it be really, nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah, but back then that's the way it was done. Yeah. You just didn't. You just accepted it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but boy, it was liberating to not have to uh, to do that. It really was. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And uh, so, with this film, uh, eighteen again, uh, what was the experience of releasing that? Like, with that being your first feature film uh, that you were able to shoot and complete and uh, have distributed. What I what I didn't know, and it's and it, again, it's my fault and my agent's fault. Mm-hmm. was that there were there were about three or four other films that did de- dealt with the same thing it was the body switching mm-hmm. um um there was one called um like father like son there was another one called big with tom hanks mm-hmm. uh and i i didn't do my i didn't do my research so anyway, by the, all of those films came out first, and then ours came out, and that whole premise was old by then, and the film didn't make money. It didn't make money, but but by then I had already got hired for my second film, which was Who's Harry Crumb, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, so I just moved on. But since then, at eighteen again has gotten. Um, a much better following you know uh yeah it feels like it happens a lot when there are those moments in film history where uh is it a, like towering inferno and uh there's uh, the disaster films that came out within quick succession of one another and yeah. 
don't really have a chance to stand on their own until sometime that's right yeah that's right and uh well that that was the thing with clifford Mm -hmm. i mean with um yeah with clifford it um i mean it is so much more appreciated now than it was when it came out you know yeah no i was really shocked i was trying to remember how i first came across clifford uh and it was was it was it was it the roger ebert review I don't think it was that. I I read that since. Um, I thought it might have been. There's the vulture uh, oral history uh, in 2021. Oh oh oh! oh. Uh, That's your that was your first exposure to the film. I I did. I I remember seeing it a little bit before that. Something uh-huh. came across. I can't remember specifically what, but I remember it was just seeing Martin Short was playing a ten year old boy, and Charles right. Grodin was his uncle. Uh, right. And I might have seen at least part of the uh, look at me like a real boy scene or look at me like right, a human right. boy. That, that's, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's the most famous yeah. scene from the movie. Yeah, which my, my friends and I quote yeah. constantly. Look, yeah. look at me like a person. Look at me like a human boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I then, think. Uh, and then Marty does that look. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of times I rewound that and watched that the first time I saw yeah. the film, just that scene. And uh, yeah. I, my roommate, my friend, and I always quote, uh, does it get any easier, Uncle Martin? Uh, not really. Uh, not <laughs> all really. the time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was uh, shocked. Like, I watched this film and it was, I just, yeah, read the premise and said, absolutely, Martin Short is a legend. Charles Grodin, Mary Steen Virgin. There's so many positives. And then seeing kind of the response I got at the time was surprising. And then the, obviously there's so much more to it. So, I guess, yeah, yeah what was, uh, with Clifford, yeah, what was your experience getting into the oh, film? I, and, I, I, well, I'll tell you a little mm-hmm. secret. When I first heard about Clifford, um, I read about it in the paper. Mm-hmm. Martin Short to play a 10-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. My first impulse, boy, is that going to bomb. Yeah. And it wasn't until months, months later that... Um, Marty called me up and uh, and asked me to direct it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but at that point, once I had seen what, what, what Marty's concept was for it, uh, I could see that not only could it work, that it could be good, funny, you know? Mm-hmm. So I uh, came aboard and uh, they were already in pre-production. So I had to jump on a moving train. Yeah. Do you remember how far along they were uh, in terms of the rest of the cast and just how uh, far away from production you were? I think it was about six weeks. Wow. But they had already done construction on the uh, on the ride, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the ride in uh, Dinosaur World? Yeah. The Scary Rex? Yeah, they had already done lots of, of that and spent lots of money on it. By the way, yeah, but uh, they didn't have anybody to play Uncle Martin. Mm. So, Marty and I and uh, Larry Bresner, the producer, went to New York and met with Chuck Weldon in a hotel room. And uh, he, by the end of the meeting, he was he was on board. Wow. I also got a little bit of insight into into Chuck 
as to how um, obsessive compulsive he, he was. And I I can pick on it, pick up on it, because I'm obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. He uh, while we had that meeting, he adjusted the thermostat, the thermostat on the wall for the temperature, I would say 15 times in the course, in the course of a two-hour meeting. Mm -hmm. He was just he just could not settle on a temperature and he would just change it like one tenth of a degree. And uh, he was that, that obsessive. Mm -hmm. And he was that way about everything. Yeah. You know? Um, but I loved working with him. I loved mm -hmm. Chuck. He was great. He was a, he was a big fan of the film. When I, when I sent him my first uh, cut of the movie, he was thrilled. He loved it. He just kept saying, um, it's so original. It's so original. I love it. I love it. And uh, which made me feel great. Because I liked I liked working with him, you know? Yeah. But he was but he was extremely obsessive about what he did and what he knew and what lines he said, you know. Mm -hmm. He practically never took um a scene as written and played it exactly as written he would always have to have to tweak it you know mm -hmm. um most of the time i i have to admit you know i, I was fine with, with what he did you know um some sometimes marty and i disagreed i remember marty marty saying one time god forbid chuck should do a, a scene the way we wrote it you know mm -hmm. uh, but uh in the end, I thought it worked out great. I thought those two worked together great. And he was great with Marty. He was a great straight man with Marty. Yeah. He would set, he would, like most great actors who play straight men, he would selflessly set the, the uh, comedy guy up, you know, to get the best possible laughs. And in that, in that human boy scene, Mm -hmm. Chuck did that all the way through that. He knew those moments. Like they like the human boy thing. He knew what he was doing mm -hmm. when he said, look at me like a person, look at me like a human boy. He knew that that was a chance for Marty to do exactly what he did, to do that face, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the human boy face. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he did that all he did it all the way through the film. Wow. He would he would set Marty up like that selflessly. Mm -hmm. Was and, that uh, hmm? Was that something you were aware of in looking at uh, at Chuck at Charles Grodin for this part going into it? Like, what made no. you think what brought no, you to no, him? no, uh, I was, uh, I, I was, I, I thought I loved Charles Grodin from. Did you ever see The Heartbreak Kid? Yeah, that's an amazing movie. Yes, yeah, I, 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 I was just, I, I couldn't believe how great he was in that. So I was mm -hmm. thrilled to have. Uh, have uh, Groden, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, what was your question again about Chuck? How did he become the uh, choice or the person you went to go speak to? Oh, about, basically, oh but yeah. basically, that was that was up to Marty mm -hmm. and Larry, Larry the producer. Again, okay. I was not an A-list director, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I was all for having having Chuck, so they didn't have to overrule me or anything. Mm -hmm. I was all for it. 
Yeah, I think yeah, what you said about him being such a great straight man is definitely part of the reason why the movie still works so well. Oh, in yeah. that I think it's interesting just to how you mentioned, I think reading the synopsis and maybe with some of the reviews at the time of it definitely can there's a fine line of Martin Short playing a 10 year old boy that can lean into being way just too over the top and never give you a chance to get into it but with that grounding presence of Charles Grodin it is this really interesting dynamic where it's always feels like it could go over the edge but it never really does yeah Uh, I I think you're right I think you're right about that yeah and I'm I'm guess I'm yeah curious how what your mindset was going into the film having that initial thought whether it had faded or not of that sounds like a bomb when first reading about oh, it no, too I was, no no, no yeah. i was very enthusiastic because i had yeah, worked yeah. with marty mm-hmm. i had worked with marty on some of the rewrites we were doing mm-hmm. and uh you know marty on, on sctv he and i worked together a lot mm-hmm. and uh so I had, I had a whole backlog of experience of working with him on, on sctv on on cable comedy specials you know mm-hmm. uh he was my favorite person to work with of all time, even before I did Clifford, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's because I just love working with him. He's just so funny. I just, and he's he's a brilliant improviser. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I was, I was excited about it. Yeah. I was excited about it. I, I, you know, I thought I went from that initial thing of, boy, is this going to bomb to, mm-hmm. boy, I mean, this is going to be a good movie. Yeah. You know? What, yeah. And I, thought, and I thought it would be a commercial movie, you know? Mm-hmm. I really did. Yeah. I mean, nobody makes nobody makes a movie to to uh to be a cult movie that gets discovered 20 years later, you know. Um mm-hmm. you know, I, I I thought it would be a commercial film. Yeah. And uh at the end of it Chuck Groden uh, immediately came to me and asked me if I would uh, direct a film that he had written. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, you know, we went around and tried to shop it at a few places, but people didn't like the, the screenplay. Mm-hmm. But he, that's, you know, he liked working with me and I felt really, you know, gratified that he did enough to want to work with me on his next film right out of the gate, you know? Yeah, especially if it's something he had written, something so close to him. Right, right. It's really exciting. Yeah. And so, yeah, what was the production of Clifford? Like, uh, what do you remember from being on set and working with these actors? And uh, what are the things that still stand out to you, what you learned that you still kind of carry with you uh, from this production? Um. You know, it was um, it was a hard film to shoot because it was pre-digital, mm-hmm. and the whole effect of Marty being smaller than everybody else had to be accomplished throughout the film with all the act- other actors standing on boxes or risers. Mm-hmm. We couldn't just shoot a scene like a normal scene. Yeah. In other words, if Marty and uh, and Groden were sitting down at chairs and then they got up and walked away and we followed them, they couldn't just get up and walk away. Marty would get up and walk on the floor, 
but Chuck would have to get up and step up onto an elevated riser and so that he would look tall so that Marty could look like a little boy. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a constant, constant pain all the way through the film. You know, you could never shoot it the normal way. Um, so yeah, I just had to um, ignore it, basically, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and not let it get to me, you know. Yeah. Because um, it always took more time. It always made compromises, you know. Mm-hmm. We would always make sure that we would shoot certain scenes from behind of Groden with a uh, uh, a Clifford double, which would be a little boy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just so that you could see them in the same shot occasionally to sell the whole quote illusion, you know? Yeah. Is that um, going back? I, I, think the, I think the big thing I learned from it was it's good on a comedy to laugh while you're making it. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's this. That's another thing. Going back to that, you know, tension on the set. There's an old adage, you know, that if people are laughing, you know, while they're making a, a comedy, it's probably not funny, you know, mm-hmm. or it's probably not not good. I, I I disagree completely. If it's a comedy, you better be laughing. If you're not laughing, then you know, I think there's a problem, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we we had fun shooting that movie. We did. That's not to say that it wasn't difficult. That's mm-hmm. not to say that it wasn't just as demanding filmically as any other thing that I ever did. You know, um, I had to keep my eye on the comedy and on the, you know, on, on the aesthetics of the film mm-hmm. simultaneously. You know, I had to make sure that I put the camera in the right spot you know yeah you know like for example um there was one film that we shot um there's a scene in the film where mary steenberg and rescues clifford because he's pretending that he was tied up by Mm -hmm. bikers and she takes him out of the house and charles groden is in the doorway yelling at them you know Mm -hmm. i set the shot up and they started Speaking it, doing the lighting and everything, and about mm, a half hour into the lighting, I realized that I picked the wrong angle. I picked the wrong angle. I should have been, instead of shooting it um, with Groden looking screen right, it should have been Groden looking screen left. Mm-hmm. And I said to the crew, guys, sorry, I screwed up. This is the wrong angle. We got to come over here and shoot it. You know. Mm-hmm. So okay, all right. They were a professional crew, so they they broke it down and you know took the lighting, you know, over to the other side. the The DP, the cinematographer, came over to me and said, "Can I give you a little tip?" <clears throat> I said, "Sure." He said, "Don't ever, ever admit out loud that you're wrong." about anything that goes on the production report and and the studio sees that and you're going to take the blame for that delay you know 
Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, you know what? Screw that. Um, I, you know, sometimes you have to admit that you picked the wrong angle, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not, what would I do? You know, blame, you know, I guess the implication there is blame it on something else or somebody else. Blame it on one of the lighting guys. Blame it on the gaffer, you know? Um, but I, you know, I didn't want to do that. I picked the wrong angle and I had to correct it, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, that's one of the things I learned about how Hollywood worked, you know? You had to... Uh, I, I wasn't expecting him to say anything like that, you know? Yeah. But he, but he was serious. He said, don't ever, ever do that again. Hmm. Don't ever admit that, that, that it was your mistake and that you cost them time. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, whoa, boy, that's cold. Yeah. Do you feel that's something uh, that helped endear, with, endear you to the crew more, perhaps, uh, by being willing to admit that you were wrong. You know what? I don't know that for sure, but I can only guess that it did, mm-hmm. you know, rather than blame them, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could, I, I could have said, you know, this lighting just sucks from this angle, you know? Mm-hmm. I hate I hate the way this is lit, you know? Mm-hmm. It looks, this looks like shit. Move it over here. It'll look, it'll look much better over here. I could have done that. Blame, blame it on the lighting. It wasn't the lighting. It was me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah I didn't want to play that that game yeah um, yeah but yeah I'm I you know I, I I did learn that you can make a comedy and laugh and uh and be conscientious about your directorial work while you're doing it at the same time mm-hmm. you know um they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. You know, when we finished shooting that, that human boy thing, we laughed. Mm-hmm. We were laughing. Did that hurt it? The fact that we were laughing, you know? Everybody everybody realized it was funny. The crew was laughing, you know? Mm-hmm. Although, another thing I learned, don't trust the crew laughs. Yeah. <laughs> just, because, just because the crew was laughing... Doesn't mean it's going to work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, get, I wish I had a dime for every time I was at a screening, and something that the crew laughed their butts off at, and then I got to the screening and it got no laugh at all. I remember thinking, yeah, but the crew were laughing their asses off at that. What happened, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Just the, yeah, hmm? a different a different audience, perhaps. I don't know what I don't know what that is. Yeah. There's there's a different dynamic with the crew on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, I don't know what it is. Honestly, I don't know whether sometimes they feel obligated to laugh because it's a comedy film. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. You know. Yeah. But uh, but I I pretty much ignored the laughs on the floor after that. Yeah. I mean, most of the time, the stuff that they laughed at was good, funny stuff, and on up in the film. Mm-hmm. But that was another thing that I learned about the editing, you know. Uh, the editors didn't always realize 
what was going to play funny in the behavioral sense. If it wasn't an out and out joke line, right? Mm -hmm. But if it was something behavioral, that was funny. You know, because behavioral comedy is character oriented, not joke oriented. And uh, and and character oriented comedy can be just as funny as 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 a joke, mm -hmm. you know. But you have to recognize that you have to be able to pick up on what's going to make an audience laugh. And like that, there, there, there was one thing in um, Clifford in that scene that that human boy scene mm -hmm. where Chuck just said at one point, "God Almighty, boy." <laughs> and and uh but the editors didn't that wasn't a joke mm -hmm. and the ed the editors uh cut it out you know just uh, because you know they, it wasn't a joke mm -hmm. and uh so you got to be able to know which character things work yeah and with the editing on clifford was it something where you felt uh, if you said all your films, you kind of had to rebuild after the rough cut. Yes, uh, yes every Yeah, every were, cut. Yeah, were every you feeling cut. confident during that process of rebuilding uh, with Clifford, like still uh, as excited as you were when starting production? Uh, where were you at during the post-production with this? Oh, uh, well, I told you, like editing is my favorite part mm -hmm. of the whole thing. So um, uh, sure, I was excited about that. I wasn't excited about going through that whole thing again about having to recut it, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm not disparaging the editors, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, um, I just, again, I had to go through and uh, if not recut every cut, approve every cut, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense, every every cut in the movie is is mine, you know? Uh, but that's just the sort of director that I am, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know, like I, there are a lot of directors that that um, aren't that aren't that way, you know. Yeah. They really want. They rely heavily on the editor, you know. Mm -hmm. And 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 you always want to um, um, take the positive from what. They give you, you know, uh, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not diminishing the fact that they can, that they would cut certain things better than I had planned them, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're of course you're grateful for that. Oh, oh, you know, you see that. Oh, 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 I see. That's that's actually funnier if you, if you if you play it off him as opposed to her, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know what I mean? Or yeah. or 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 stay wide on something. Or you had planned on doing it in closer coverage, you know. So uh, good editors will always give you those those good moments, you know. Mm -hmm. Definitely a important collaboration with the director. Yeah, yeah. And I have to admit that I uh, I'm overly bearing with uh, editors. Mm -hmm. I tend to I tend to micromanage. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of times it's not really fair to them, you know, mm -hmm. because they're competent, good editors, 
And they don't like to have the directors going through every cut and saying, okay, two frames here. No, 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 not three, two. Mm-hmm. You, know? Um, you, know, you know what I mean? And going through every cut that way. Yeah. It's 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 exhausting to them, and it's um, you know, in essence, it's not really fair. So I I admit to being a micro manager in the editing room. I admit to it. But I can't. Yeah, and they're not necessarily coming from a comedy background either. Correct? They're coming from various. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. or or you know, they they, they might have come from a comedy background but um had um i don't know had, had worked with editors that that um you know work that relied on them for all the basic cutting you know mm-hmm. um and you know there's a million different ways to direct a film there's a million different ways to collaborate you know with editors there's a million different ways to collaborate with actors and Cinematographers and the art department. Um, all, all filmmakers are are different, you know. Yeah, definitely. And was I it ever hmm? was it ever presented to you as an option to edit your own films with your background in editing or in the studio system? That just was never an option. That was never an option. Mm-hmm. I just wound up doing it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I must admit that I learned my lesson on eighteen again. You know that uh, if if you've sh- if you've shot like the finale in that movie was a um, a um, a race. It was on a track at, uh, at a track meet, mm-hmm. and uh, I basically planned out every shot in that sequence. But when the editor put it together. He had no idea. He, he had no idea. He just put all the different shots in there. Mm-hmm. And there, there was no, the, the pacing that I had in mind for it was not there at all. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the build and the, and, the, and the shot sequence was not there at all. Um, so uh, I, you know, I, I didn't blame him for that. Although, as I said, the producer wanted to in his throat when he saw the cut, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, you know, some directors, you know, will shoot lots and lots of footage, and they'll get a really good editor, and have that editor put that sequence together as he sees it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can wind up with with really good, really good stuff that way. Yeah, if that's the way you work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, every you know, case George, is a little you know, like George Stevens and William Wyler and uh, those guys. You know, they they would turn it over to the uh, to the editor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely different styles. Right, and um, directors come from different backgrounds. You know, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, oftentimes directors will come from theater, mm-hmm. and. Uh, where the whole thing there is a live flow of the, you know, give and take between the, the actors and the audience, you know, it just flows as one 
continuous thing, you know, from act one to act two to act three, right? Mm -hmm. uh, coming from that background, it's very different. Yeah. Than the uh, than the film aesthetic, right? Yeah. So yeah. a director like that, uh, I would guess, I never saw one of them work, but I would guess is going to rely very heavily on his cinematographer for the coverage, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to let his cinematographer make lots of suggestions about the coverage, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to go to the cinematographer and say, okay, um, I want to have him, you know, have him come in here and come over and talk to her, you know? And uh, usually the cinematographer will say, okay, let's run it through on the floor and see what we got, you know? And the cinematographer will be thinking about how it will look, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, he'll talk that over with, with the uh, director and say, I think it would work. I think this is going to work better, you know, in a, in a two shot to here and maybe go into their coverage here, right? Mm -hmm. And and usually if you trust your cinematographer, good, let's do it, you know? Yeah. And, but yeah. then again, you have other directors that come in with a preconceived notion of what that shot's going to be. Mm -hmm. Maybe they never wanted it, that, that, that to be a two shot there. Maybe they wanted it to be a big wide shot, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, sometimes that can crimp the cinematographer's style. They want, they want input. They want to be collaborators. Yeah. You know? And oftentimes they're not that thrilled about directors who, you know, have the shot worked out in their head before they even get on the floor, you know? Mm -hmm. yes. Hitchcock, Hitchcock used to say that uh, the film was already made in his, on the uh, storyboards months before they got to shoot it. And then he had to go through the pain in the ass of actually shooting the movie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that's 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 that, that's what he said, you know. And yeah. I, I I think in, in in many ways that's that's what he believed, you know. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, big difference between him and uh, and George Stevens or, or or William Wyler, right? Yeah. And did you study at uh, a film school uh, of any kind, or how did you? Uh, uh, no, know? David, David mm -hmm. Lean was my film school. Uh, the director of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, mm -hmm. He was he was my film school. I studied every frame of everything he did. Mm -hmm. That's that's how I learned. Yeah. Uh, I I you know I I learned. Uh, I I went to school in New York to uh, to learn uh, the technical aspects of it you know how to uh how to operate a, a film camera how to load a film camera with a with a um a dark bag you know how to how to light how to um how to, how to run a moviola which is what you edited on in those days mm -hmm. how to how to cut double system film 
right? With your film and your soundtrack running simultaneously through the Uviola, how to edit those so that, um, you know, uh, you could make that one piece of film, mm -hmm. you know, um, all the technical stuff. I went to school for that, learned, okay. learned, learned all that, but not the actual um, craft of, of filmmaking. I, I, I learned that on my own. Yeah, I think it's interesting just talking about talking about all these different styles that I know I went to a film school and there's definitely a lot of telling students how things maybe should be done instead of how they could be done. Uh, oh, yeah. So I think you all these things you've highlighted as your kind of personal tenets of what directing what filmmaking is to you are really fascinating uh, that no one else is going to do it the exactly the exact same way yeah. no matter what. And you found all these things through experience and trial and oh, error. Yeah. And it's also so much more than that. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, you learn how important art direction is. Mm -hmm. You learn how important cinematography is. You know, you really have to, uh, you really have to be able to collaborate with the, with the cinematographer about mm -hmm. the look of the film, you know, the yeah. general, the general, approach to the to, to the cinematography mm -hmm. um and um as i said the art direction which is extremely important you know the costumes the the the, the product the design of the sets the um you know that's all extremely important yeah uh to the overall look of the film and that's that, that you know when i was saying that while you're laughing during the comedy all of that other stuff has to be in play and you have to be constantly, you know, looking at every shot from every angle about the production design, about, about the lighting, mm -hmm. about, about the uh, performances, mm -hmm. about camera placement, camera movement. Uh, all of that, all of that has to be, you know, working in you simultaneously. You know, and uh, and a very important thing is at the end of this sequence, what are you going into? What's your next sequence? How is your last shot of this sequence going to cut into the first shot of the next one? Because mm -hmm. that's important. Yeah. To the flow, to the flow of the film. Um. How is this scene that you're working on going to fit into the overall scheme of the film? You know, mm -hmm. are you are you making too much of it? Are you making too little of it? So it's all that stuff that's at play. Yeah, it's all that stuff that's at play. And then on the meantime, then there's the other thing that you learn is that you are the ultimate decision maker. Remember when I when you show up in the morning, one thing never changes. That that circle around you. Okay, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. You know, and you. You better be prepared to tell them because you know every every minute lost is thousands of bucks. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And then the and then the uh, wardrobe comes up and they've got three or four choices for a scene that's coming up in three or four days. Which which outfit do I like for Groden? You know? Mm -hmm. Uh 
And they're standing there waiting patiently to ask you that question while the lighting guys and the grips and everybody else are wanting, wanting to know what direction the camera is shooting and what the action's going to be. That yeah. you know, the, uh, the costume designer is waiting very patiently for you to pick that costume, which doesn't even has nothing to do with the scene that you're shooting. <laughs> and then, and then the uh, the guys from props is behind the costume designer, and he's got a uh, an electronic device that they invented for a scene for Dinosaur World, which is going to shoot in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And he wants my and he and he needs to have my approval on it, you know. Yeah. So all of that is going on constantly, constant questions all day long, constant questions, constant questions. Then right in the middle of it, phone call. It's the studio calling. Oh, good, that'll be fun. <laughs> so run right to uh, a telephone and uh, get get on, get on with the studio, and they're talking about casting for a scene that will shoot. In two weeks and they've mm-hmm. got ideas about the casting and and it, it has nothing to do with the the ideas that you had mm-hmm. and uh so they're basically letting you know what the choices are and uh sometimes they'll they'll they'll, they'll give you your choice sometimes they'll override you mm-hmm. um but you know you've got to deal with the, you've got to deal with the studio and all the while you're dealing with them, they're on the floor, lighting, waiting for you to get back so they can ask you about something else. Can I? Can we cut this guy's line to save money and just pay him as a as a as an extra? You know, mm-hmm. all day long, all day long, yeah. questions, 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 questions. Never stops. Never stops from the moment you start shooting. The moment you you rap, that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. And what would you do, or what would you keep in mind to keep yourself focused as much as possible throughout all of that? Especially, I mean, just trying to do comedy uh, alone, like trying to make it successful, comedic film. Uh, what were the kind of things you would keep in mind or tell yourself uh, in order to try to get the best? performances you could have the actors and uh tell the best story possible you know there, there, there it depended on the scene it depended on the day mm-hmm. you know then, then, then that's the other thing you have to think on your feet mm-hmm. you have to think on your feet i'll give you um, a good example we were shooting at a location in pasadena at this big mansion and we were going to come back the following day to shoot the remainder of the scene that I was shooting that day. Then we found out that the owner decided they weren't going to rent to us for that next day. Mm. We, had, we had to get out today. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that means that everything that I had planned to shoot tomorrow had to be shot today. And everything that I had planned for tomorrow was completely different setups. It did not fit at all into what we're getting ready to shoot. So I had to, hmm, I had to figure out how to get everything that needed to be shot into this one day. Mm -hmm. So I had to take that whole crew 
and talk and talk to the producer and say, I need you to have everybody take a break for 45 minutes. And so everybody in the crew walked off the uh, the, uh, the set and went off and ate and took coffee breaks and whatever. And I had to sit down and completely rework everything that I was going to shoot that day. Every shot and, mm -hmm. and compress it and compress it and compress it into a workable form that could be done that day. Wow. When I, well, of course, when I walked in that afternoon, I had no idea whatsoever that anything like that was going to be thrown at me. Mm -hmm. You know, well, what choice did I have? Yeah. So it was just me sitting there all by myself in that house with a pad and pen. And I had to I had to work out all, all by myself. Wow. Not you know hoping and praying that it would work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. The the glamour they don't really tell you about <laughs> outside of. Uh, well, yeah, and weather. And how, how, how about weather? Mm -hmm. um, I was shooting uh, one of those things I was telling you about that I shot for SCTV when I was learning. I had worked out the whole thing that we had shot for this sequence in an outdoor bazaar, a 19th century bazaar. It was a period sketch that we were shooting. Mm -hmm. And I got there and there was pouring rain. Pouring rain. No way we could shoot it there. So we had to move the entire thing to another part of the neighborhood where we were shooting it which had like a big overhang on top of it. It was mm. like an industrial area. Yeah. And we had to put the whole thing in there, which, which was essentially moving it outdoors to indoors. So I was in the same boat that I was in. I had to, I had to change all the shots wow. and come up with new shots. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. I had, I, you know, I showed up and boom, I had no idea. It was pouring rain. So you got to be able to you got to be able to think on your feet and you also have to be able to think ahead. You know? Mm -hmm. You have to be able to think a day ahead, a week ahead. And you also have to be able to think half an hour ahead when you, when everything, when you're, when the rug got pulled out from under you, you know? Yeah. And again, at the end of that half hour, that 45 minutes that I took, there was that circle around me again. Okay, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. You know? So I had to I had to walk them through every shot. Yeah. You know, I say, okay, this we're going to call this shot A, and we put tape down on the floor, and then we walked up to the next one, and okay, we're going to call this shot B. Mark that on the floor, and we I had to go through the whole sequence right to the end, marking it on the floor that way. Wow. You know, so when the actors came in, they had to follow those marks. And and the cinematographer knew what he would be lighting, just mm -hmm. off the marks, right? No, that's that's nothing special that I did. All directors get hit with those things, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of decision making, uh, mm -hmm. just yeah, yeah constant. And, and think on it, and and think on your feet. Yeah, 
No, an actor will an actor will do will do it. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, an actor an actor suddenly says, you know, I just don't feel right sitting here del- delivering these lines. I should be, and I feel like I should be up. I should be up and pacing and walking around. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Meanwhile, I had worked the whole thing out for the actor being in that chair. Mm-hmm. All my shots were based on that, right? Yeah. So then you do, then you do a rehearsal with the actor walking around, and then it becomes you and the cinematographer watching it and figuring out how, how it's going to be covered, you know. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, and you listen very closely to your cinematographer in those situations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as to what he or she thinks best way to to. Uh, approach it you know yeah usually so it's, hard. it's constant constant challenging it's hard directing a movie it's hard mm-hmm. it's, and it's and it's non-stop yeah do you yeah you mm-hmm. great i see it. do you feel like there's uh anything any lesson that you got taught prior to making any of your films or anywhere throughout your career, like a piece of advice that really you took to heart and you found to be really helpful and uh, uh, supportive of you moving forward, like something that you took with you onto all your next projects and uh, kind of maybe demystified the process a little bit? Um, yes, but that's something that I learned on my own from making my own little movies all those years. Mm-hmm. And when I was when I was a teenager making movies, here's, here's, here's the big thing I learned. When I was a teenager making those movies with the eight millimeter camera, it's basically exactly the same as making a movie with a seventy person crew and a hundred thousand dollar film camera. It's mm-hmm. it's basically the same process. It's it's picking the shots. It's it's picking, making sure you pick the right shots, making sure that you get the right performance. You know, mm-hmm. that's the same whether you're shooting as a teenager in your backyard with your when your cast is your brothers and sisters, as it is to shooting with you know high paid actors in Hollywood. It's basically the same process. You know. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's it's you, and the camera, and the actors, and and your choices, and that never changes. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That yeah. was the big thing. That's the big thing that I learned. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, that's great. It's it seems like it must feel so different. I think from the outside, of bringing in all those people, but having that train of well, thought you know, yeah yeah you know well you know all those things i was talking to you about about the constant questions you don't get that when you're when you're making your your little films on your own mm-hmm. you know you know you don't have that, that crew of people around you um constantly constantly questioning and wanting to know what to do what to do what to do mm-hmm. uh that whole thing you know and dealing with the studio and blah 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 and, and all of that and um but the basic the basic process is you and that camera and the shots you choose 
you know, and the mm -hmm. actors, and the actors that you have, and how you and how you put it together. Yeah, it's the same process, but with, you know, but what used to cost, you know, three and a half dollars to do, now costs twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars a day. Yeah, do, you know? <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit more of a financial risk. Yes, and that's yeah. the other thing. Mm -hmm. Don't you know you have to you, you know you always have to be mindful of of doing what's fiscally you know financially responsible mm -hmm. in the way you shoot. You can't just come up with some ridiculous idea all of a sudden, you know that's going to throw you into overtime into golden time and cost a ton of money and means you're going to have to come back again and shoot again again. Mm. You know you have to be you know you can't let yourself. If you're not an A-list director, you can't let yourself do that, you know? Yeah. But on the other hand, you can't constantly think about the money. If you constantly think about, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, just that conversation I had cost $1,000, mm -hmm. you know? You'll go crazy if you if you do that. It'll, it'll, it'll paralyze you. Yeah. You know? um, but that having been said, after all everything that I've just been talking to you about and getting long-winded about, um, basically, I don't feel competent to teach anybody how to direct. Hmm. I think that anybody, every any any director should should pick should find out, experiment and find out his or hers method of shooting. What it is that, let me, let me put it this way. Every, every, every director should ask him or herself this question. What would, what would I like to see in this movie that I'm making? If I were gonna watch this movie that I'm about to make, what would I like to see that would make me say, Boy, that's good. I like that. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. ask yourself that question. You know, and and go after that. No matter what your, no matter what what your method is. You know, some some filmmakers like to have lots of imp improvisation with their actors, lots of it, all the way through. You know, um, and you can make a great film that way. Other 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 directors don't like improvisation at all. You can make a great film that way. So find out what it is that that that's your strength and what it is that that you enjoy about the filmmaking process because you have to enjoy it. You have to enjoy it. Mm. You know, and it has to be a compulsion. Mm -hmm. Because once you get to actually doing it professionally, the pressure is so great that you better enjoy what you're doing or you're going to hate it, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing advice. So that, yeah, that's the thing that I was saying about when I was a kid, about it being the same process. I loved it then, and I loved it when I, when I made Clifford, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, in every movie, there are those moments 
where the cast, you know, just uh, is unhappy about the writing in the scene all of a sudden, you know, and they, you know, and they, and they're all unhappy. Everybody in the scene, they all, I, I never thought this was a good scene anyway, you know, one of those moments, you know, they all go, why didn't you say something, you know, back when we were in pre-production, you know, but um, and then you have to do a rewrite and things like that. Now, those are never fun moments, you know, there's no way that that's fun, but all in all, you have to love the process, even with those pain in the ass moments, you know, mm -hmm. you have to love it and it has to be a compulsion. Yeah, it's also, you know, one of those things where you'd be willing to pay to do it, mm -hmm. that, you, that you love it that much, you know? Yeah. Because if not, it's um, it's not going to be an enjoyable process, and it's going to show up. Yeah, it's going to show up on screen. Absolutely. You know, John, John John Houston, who was one of my favorite directors, mm -hmm. um, he would take films strictly for the money. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. And I remember that quote from him. He was talking to one of his writers once. You know, he said, "Look." If you're making a film, you know, and they want a good film, you give them a good film, you know. But if they want a bad film, give them a bad film, mm. you know. He would just do it for the money, yeah. Even though he, even though he knew that he was not doing good work and not and not making a good film, he would do it for for, for the money. Mm. Uh, you know, he had like gambling compulsions and things like that you know he mm -hmm. spent a lot of money on on the ponies you know yeah but um but he also made some some incredibly great films mm -hmm. so but you can immediately tell when john houston was making a film for money it showed up right away it did yeah. not have it did not have that same feel to it that same commitment that same energy and joy to it you know and vision to it mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if anything that I've said to you is going to be worth anything to anybody. No, <laughs> but, um, that's that's just been my um, experience, and I'm sorry if I've talked too much. No, no, Paul, please, thank you so much for your time. This has been so amazing just to hear your thoughts and perspective i know i found i learned so much just by hearing and listening and talking to as many different people as i can and then learning mm -hmm. all these little yeah. bits and pieces along the way yeah. instead of just turning to one person and trying to find all the answers there so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh it's yeah just i yeah i'm so grateful for your time and i'm so glad that you have gotten so much joy out of making these films because you've definitely shared so much joy I know so many people now with Clifford, especially in all your other work with uh, SCTV and everything that you've just shared so much laughter and joy. And I, I know my friends have all been <laughs> given the Clifford spiel of how amazing it is by this point. Uh, yeah. It's well rehearsed with me. It's such an important movie uh, in my heart. So really, thank you so much for your time. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. thank you for your openness and generosity with us. Oh, you're welcome, and, and good luck with your work. Great. Yeah, thank you so much.